Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, um, for the value it brings uh, to moments like these. God, we thank you um, that it is so central to what's happening in these moments. We're not listening for advice. Um, We're listening for the voice of your spirit uh, speaking through your word, God. And we pray we would hear you with clarity, uh, that you'd give us understanding as regards gospel and the reality of the kingdom. Change us in the hearing of your word, we pray in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. So it, it never fails, like year after year. You get to this point in the season, you've probably, a lot of you, like gotten your Christmas shopping started, at least. Some of you have already finished because you're, you're overachievers or something. Like, you feel pretty good about it, right? Like, you are hearing from Mia this morning. Mosaic is, is trying to convince you that maybe you should consider shopping for somebody else other than those you might traditionally shop for, one of these, these inner-city kids that won't have much of a Christmas, right? All this is just saying Christmas. Heck, like, some of you guys probably listened to Christmas music in the car on the way here. It's a very Christmassy sort of moment, it feels like. And then you get here, and John reigns on your little Christmas parade. That's who John is. He makes us just a little bit uncomfortable. And I think in any season, when you're listening to John, he can feel kind of like a, a disruption to the status quo in any season, but especially so in this season. In the midst of of our cultural Christmas celebrations, the festivities that that characterize how we celebrate Christmas as a culture, not as a church, but as a culture, these things we all know and are so familiar with, John shows up in the midst of all of that and he spoils the whole illusion that we're so used to. He says some things that make us deeply uncomfortable. And I, I think the truth is, we're, we're rather comfortable with the illusion. We've gotten used to it. We like it. It feels warm and nostalgic to us. We cling to it, and it's good. We talked about that last week. It's good, these things. But I, I think sometimes we really sink into it. We, we give ourselves to it in a way maybe we shouldn't. Especially after the last couple of years, it feels like that's what we need, a bit of an illusion, an escape into some sort of fantasy where we can forget about the harsh reality of what's going on around us sometimes. That's what what Christmas can feel like sometimes. And John, on the other hand, reminds us what we need is not an illusion, what we need is God with us. And he says it in the strongest kind of way. We need the reality of the kingdom come, we need something that Santa, nor Apple, nor Amazon can offer us. That's the reality. And John says it in in very harsh terms, it feels like. Because John isn't a messenger of Christmas. He just isn't. He's the messenger of, of Advent. The church has historically seen John as this messenger, a prophet of, of Advent. The messenger of Christmas is, is that angel that shows up and and speaks to Mary, tells her this incredible news about what's about to unfold. The messenger of Christmas is, is the, the angels who, who go to the shepherds out in their, their fields late at night. 
That's the messenger of Christmas. And we, we come to that year after year, but John feels out of place in the middle of all of that. He, he sticks out. He feels uncomfortable. It makes me think of uh, that age-old cultural tradition where we go every year and we have to find a tree. Like some of us have, have just decided that we'll just purchase, you know, one of these prefab trees and we'll set it up every year and we're comfortable with it, okay? That's where we're at. But I remember as a child, and many of you still do it, you go to a Christmas tree farm, you go to a Christmas tree lot, wherever it might be. Just imagine, you show up at the, at the Christmas tree farm and there's this moment always you kind of like crest the hill or something, and, and you see a tree there in the distance. It stands taller than all the others. It's fuller and more beautiful, and it's this magical kind of moment where you realize that's the one. That's the tree I'm going to have, and you're, you're scheming to make certain that no one gets to that tree before you do because you don't want to lose that tree. It's the tree, right? It's, it's, it's a magical moment, but imagine for a minute the problem is there at the entrance between you and this tree is this strange, homeless-looking fella. And he's surrounded by these, these handwritten posters, repent or else. And you're thinking, what is that guy doing here? Why would you ruin this magical moment with all of your, your hellfire and brimstone? I, I, I don't understand, John. Why would you be here? And the funny thing is, the Gospels, for some reason, over and over again, the authors want to put John right in the middle of this story that we kind of want to exclude him from. We love this stuff. It means a lot to us. It's beautiful. Why do you want to bring John into this? And yet they all do it. They want to talk about the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of the Word, and they want to talk about John within the same breath almost. He has a unique purpose. John isn't here to paint a picture of the nativity. He's not here to paint a picture of Bethlehem for us. That's just the reality of it. John is speaking to the crowds 30 years after all of that. He was born just a few months before it happened. John is not a messenger of Christmas. He's, he's not trying to point us toward Bethlehem. It's important for us to remember, 30 years later, he's speaking to these crowds, and it's not about Bethlehem or about what happened there 30 years earlier. He's not trying to point us toward Bethlehem. That's important. The focus and the hope of Advent is not Bethlehem. And again, we can kind of get confused sometimes. The hope of Advent is not Bethlehem, Bethlehem is just the evidence of that hope. It's what makes that hope of Advent certain, right? Bethlehem is the evidence of that hope we have in this season. If God came to dwell with us once, the church would say, throughout history, then he will do it again. If he's done it once, he will do it again. If Jesus, the baby born in a manger, can turn the world upside down, if Jesus, this helpless child, can redeem us from brokenness and sin, then imagine what Jesus, the righteous judge, can do. That's the hope of Advent. God is about to transform the whole of the cosmos, the whole of creation, in the same way that he has begun to transform you and I 
God is about to, to transform all that he has created. The sense you get from John is, is you don't need the illusion. You don't need a fantasy. What he's offering us is, is far better news. Something real, something concrete. That's what he wants to do. And sometimes, again, it's a little uncomfortable. Luke introduces us to John in kind of a, an, an interesting way. You caught it. You noticed it. Mia noticed it. He tells us all these details. All these names. All these important Roman leaders, these Jewish leaders. And we're thinking every time we have to read it, especially out loud in front of people, why all the names, Luke? Why do you have to do this to me? What is this? What is this about? And we kind of tend to, to see that as, as almost unnecessary. And we kind of read over it, read right past it on the way to something more exciting, something more important. But there's, there's actually a point to what Luke is doing with all of these names. He's telling us something. Right? Think about it. If you read in the Old Testament, and you, you're reading maybe Isaiah, or the beginning of, of Jeremiah. We, we were in this series just recently, a couple weeks back. We were finishing this series on the Minor Prophets, the Book of the Twelve, right? Twelve Minor Prophets. If you read through many of them, you'll see the same kind of format. They all begin with these details, things like, who was the king? When was this prophet living? When were they speaking? These details were really important for the people they were writing to. And when Luke begins to tell us about John, he starts with these details, the same kind of way. Who was the king? What was happening in that moment? He intentionally starts it off just like all those other prophets. It's Luke's way of saying, John, he's a prophet too. Just like they were prophets, he is a prophet. And just like you listen to them and you revere them, you have to listen to him. Pay attention. It's, it's Luke's way of saying, like, listen up. This is important. What he, this man is going to say is important. And in particular, there's, there's one prophet that all of the Gospels seem to connect to John. Elijah. Over and over again, they make this connection to Elijah. Elijah, if you've ever read the Old Testament, is unforgettable. You cannot forget Elijah. He's so memorable. And among many memorable things that we know about Elijah, there is the fact that he didn't die. If you read 2 Kings, they tell us Elijah doesn't die. He's carried off into heaven in a chariot of fire. Like, who knows what that means? That would have been exceptional, remarkable enough in and of itself, right? But over time, Elijah became even more larger than life, you know? He became more and more prominent in their thinking and in their theology because the idea developed in Israel over the years. What they believed was that in the same way Elijah had just been taken into heaven, he could return. He would be messenger to Israel once again, right? He did not die. He would come once again, right? And you might remember it. We were in Malachi just like two weeks ago. In Malachi chapter 4, we read some of Malachi 3 this morning in the call to worship. No, it wasn't in the call to worship. It was during worship, during our, our reading. The Old Testament reading came from Malachi 3. If you read Malachi 4, it's verse 5, right? These are the last verses of Malachi, and it says, 
See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Now just think about that. Think about your Bible for a minute, whether you're holding it in your hand, whether it's on your phone, whatever. Think about it. The church took the Hebrew Bible, all of its books, and created the Old Testament. We have all the same books that you'll find in the Hebrew Bible, but with one difference. We put them in a different order. We laid them out a bit differently. The church wanted to kind of rearrange the order of the books, and the way they chose to lay it out was to end our Old Testament with Malachi. So that the last words of Malachi are the last words of the Old Testament, right? And so you hear Malachi say those words. See, I will send the messenger, Elijah, to you before the day of the Lord comes, right? Before the Messiah comes, before God establishes the kingdom once more, I will send Elijah. And you flip the page. The church set it up this way. Years ago, we have traditionally read it this way. You flip the page from the last of the Old Testament, hearing about Elijah, and you open the Gospel of Matthew. And one of the first people you meet is John the Baptist, who looks an awful lot like Elijah. It's on purpose. They want you to make the connection. He dresses this way for a reason. He looks this way and ministers this way for a reason. It's not a mistake. John is a prophet, but he's not just any prophet. He's the new Elijah. That's huge, right? It's this cataclysmic sort of moment for them. Because when you see Elijah, the assumption is you'll know who's coming next. You see Elijah, who's coming next? God with us. The Messiah, the long-awaited one, is coming. If you see Elijah, you know something incredible is about to happen. The day of the Lord is coming. John isn't just any ordinary prophet. He's the new Elijah, right? And the next conclusion you ought to make is that means the one he's announcing, Jesus, isn't just some ordinary carpenter who's going to lead a revolution among the poor. No, he's, he's God in human flesh. He's the, the incarnate God of the universe. They're doing all this on purpose. It's not a mistake. They want you to see it. But there's another reason Luke is, is dropping all of these names. Because he wants you to recognize kind of the, the full scope of John's message, of what he's saying, really. Because he's listing some pretty important names, right? Tiberius Caesar, the emperor of Rome, Pilate, the governor who was appointed by Caesar in Judea. Like these are important people, and it's not like Tiberius Caesar or Pilate were showing up out in the wilderness to listen to John preach. No, it's not like Caiaphas, who was the high priest and an incredibly important figure in their world. It's not like they're showing up. They're hearing about the things John is doing. John was written about widely in the ancient world. A lot of people knew about him outside of the Bible. He was an important figure, right? But it's not because those people were showing up to hear him. They were hearing about it through other people. The crowds that came to hear John and Jesus, for that matter, they were ordinary, everyday people. They weren't Caesar, for sure. And yet, Luke wants us to know something. 
even though these were ordinary people and, and very often like desperate, poor people who were looking and longing for the Messiah, right? The message wasn't just for the poor and the destitute. What John is about to say is for the wealthy and the powerful and for the religious and the sanctimonious, for the Jew and the Gentile. Luke is trying to lay it all out for you so you understand it. This message is going to reach as high as the emperor of Rome and yet all the way to the most distant Gentile who's never heard of Jesus or Judea for that matter. Something amazing is about to happen. It's what Luke is trying to help us see. And this is real important to Luke, especially because Luke is not Jewish. He's not an insider. Luke is a Gentile. Luke was one of those who had heard as it spread like wildfire through the ancient world, right? That's who Luke was. And so it's very important for him as he begins to quote the words of Isaiah about this messenger crying out in the wilderness. He wants you to hear those last words. All people will see God's salvation. Luke had experienced it himself, and he's saying it's going to continue to happen. This message is going to continue to move out further and further. It's really important for us to know this, because here's the thing. We have so severely domesticated gospel and the reality of the kingdom and church, all of these things, that it just feels so normal to us. We're just so comfortable with it, and it, it's become so central to who we are that we forget how revolutionary it was and, and still is, right? We forget that the message we proclaim, the gospel, the reality of the kingdom, it's not just religious. It's not just spiritual even, whatever we mean by that sometimes. This message that John is speaking and the things that Jesus is eventually going to, to say the gospel is going to shake Rome to its core. It's going to turn the ancient world upside down, right? What John is saying has geopolitical consequences. Like the empire is going to feel this. And I think if we're speaking it the right way, then the same will be true in our day. Like, the gospel is still shaking and rearranging the world as we know it. And it's supposed to if we're speaking it the right way. It's supposed to have consequences beyond just what we're doing in these moments. And that's what Luke wants you to see. It ought to have those kinds of consequences. This message is incredibly significant. It's earth-shattering. So Luke just says over and over again, with as much clarity as he knows how to. The man is, is brilliant and the way he lays all this out. And what he wants you to see, John is a prophet with a message that is, is meant for the, the highest echelons of society all the way down to the dregs of society. His message is spoken to the whole, right? But Luke also wants us to see how it is that this strange prophet of Advent, this man who dresses in camel hair and eats locusts and honey and lives out in the wilderness. How is it that that guy is connected to the baby born in Bethlehem? Why is Luke telling us about him in the same breath? Why is he so connected to Jesus? Luke wants us to see why John is so relevant to this story. 
And the church, historically, has wanted us as believers to see why John is so relevant in this season of Advent as we move toward Bethlehem, toward the celebration of Christmas together. Because for them, John is not as out of place as we might imagine him. He fits in all of this. But you have to kind of dig a little bit. If you read the, the, the first two chapters of Luke, you can see Luke, he, again, he's, he's brilliant in the way he's doing it. He's just dropping these subtle little clues here, the importance of all of this, and how John fits in, how important John is. If you look in, uh, in Luke chapter 1, whether you've got your Bible in your hand or on your phone or whatever else, you can, you can follow this. It's really interesting what he does. You know the story well. In, in, in chapter 1, it's verse 38. Mary has just been told the incredible news by this angel, probably the overwhelming and, and almost frightening kind of news, that she's going to be the mother of God, right? Like that's overwhelming. It's overwhelming enough to become a mother, much less to be told this. And yet Mary, after hearing all of this, she says in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And Luke uses this word that he's going to use over and over again in the Greek. May your rhema to me be fulfilled. This word, this thing you've spoken to me, may it be fulfilled. And he's going to repeat that word over and over again throughout these first couple chapters. If you look further, it's in chapter 2, it's verse 15. Once again, angels making a pronouncement. They go to the shepherds who are out watching their flocks by night, right? You know the songs. Verse 15, the angels had left them and gone back into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this, this thing that has happened. It's translated in Greek. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this, this rhema that has happened. This word that has been fulfilled, in essence, is what they're saying. Let's go and see it, this thing that the Lord told us about. Let's go and see this, this rhema in, in Bethlehem. It's amazing, right? And the shepherds do something interesting. They're telling everybody about what's happening. They want to tell Joseph and Mary. that They didn't just show up in Bethlehem. No, no, no. Angels came to them, and Mary's like, hey, I know what you're talking about. I understand, right? But they're telling other people about this amazing thing that's happened, and all the people around them are just stunned but Luke tells us, Mary, on the other hand, treasured these things in her heart. She treasured this rhema, this word, in her heart. He just keeps dropping it over and over again. He's trying to help us see it, this thread that you can trace all the way through. Then you go a little bit further in chapter 2. And Mary and Joseph, it's in, in verse 22, when they, they take Jesus up to the temple like every other little Jewish boy. He is to be consecrated in the temple. This is the time when he would have been circumcised. It's one of the most significant days of someone's life, okay? And while they're there, there's this old man, Simeon. Simeon has been following for years. He's been a worshiper for years. He's a righteous man, and he's heard from the Lord that he will not die until he sees the Messiah. He's been waiting on this. When he lays eyes on Jesus, he takes him into his arms. And he makes this powerful statement. It's in, in verse 29 of chapter 2. 
Sovereign Lord, as you have promised. Again, in Greek, according to your rhema, the word you promised. According to this word, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You can let me depart now, Lord, for I have laid eyes on your salvation. This word, I've seen it, right? Luke just keeps dropping it over and over again. By the end of the second chapter, you go a little bit further, and there's the story of Jesus. You don't get many of those stories. You probably remember it. He's lost as far as Mary knows. She can't find him. She doesn't know where he is. So she goes back to Jerusalem where they've just come from looking for him and she finds Jesus in the temple. He's surrounded by all these really important people, experts and and teachers in the law and he's been having a conversation with them apparently like little boys do. And I assume she does the same thing that every other mother would do in that moment. I don't know if she accosts him for all of this. I don't, I don't know if she tells him how worried she was, whatever. But you imagine that must have happened. And then Jesus looks at her and he says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? It's like this puzzling moment for everybody sitting there. Wait, 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 wait. Little guy's smart and well beyond his years. But what did he just say? What does he mean? Like, they're stunned by what he says. They're kind of confused, is what Luke tells us. But, he says, Mary, once again, treasured these words, this rhema, in her heart. Just keeps coming back to it, right? He's tracing all of this through the story. So when you meet John the Baptist in chapter 3, and Luke tells us, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. He wants you to make the connection. This is the same rhema, the same word that was spoken to Mary, that she treasured in her heart. This is the same word that was spoken to those shepherds that amazed them that they went to see fulfilled in Bethlehem. This was the same word that Simeon laid his eyes on and he felt the deepest kind of peace. It's the same word that's being spoken to John. Again, we tend to see John as this strange figure in the story, and yet Luke wants you to see same word is being spoken through John as was spoken to Mary. It's the same message through and through. God is coming. And I think they probably heard it as God is still coming, just like we do. It's this reminder, God is still coming. Like, this this is real, and I know it's been a while. I don't know, you've been waiting and longing, and you still feel like nothing has changed, but God is still coming. 30 years ago, that was true, and it's true now. John is saying, God is coming, and today, as we read it, it, it's true. That's what we're supposed to see as we read Luke. Like everything Luke is doing is trying to help us see the importance of John, that we need to listen to him and that we need to listen to him maybe in a different way than we might at first think. Our first impressions of John sometimes lead us to dismiss him. He seems like a crazy. It's easy to dismiss John, and and we have to kind of listen to him in a, a different way maybe than we've listened to him in the past. We haven't seen him as he really is intended to be seen. Because we tend to see John, again, as as kind of an eccentric. He's a little crazy. He makes us all a a little bit uncomfortable. He's like that person you know. I had a friend like this in college. 
Like they were going to show up. Like maybe you have like a coworker. They're slightly inappropriate sometimes. They're going to show up at the office Christmas party and they're going to say something. Everybody knows it's coming every year and nobody knows what to say in that moment. He's going to make everybody uncomfortable. I had a friend that just had like a gift. He knew how to make people so uncomfortable and it always happened in large groups. Why now? Why can't it just be when it's, you know, one or two of us? No, all the time. John feels like that guy. He feels like this guy. In the season of Advent, he's just making us all uncomfortable. He shows up. He reigns on our parade, remember? Because part of that is, is our problem, not his. We, we tend to see John, at best, we tend to see him a lot of times as, as like he's preparing us for Christmas. Yeah, he's saying some, some hard things, but we do need to hear it, right? He's God's messenger. He's preparing the way of the Lord, right? But again, John isn't trying to prepare you for Christmas. Again, 30 years ago, John's not trying to prepare you for Bethlehem. He's not trying to make sure you're in the Christmas spirit and you see it all rightly. John is trying to show you the implications of Christmas. John's trying to show us the implications of Bethlehem. Why is this so important? Why do we tell this story again and again? John's trying to show you the implications of Bethlehem and of the first advent of Christ. See, he's trying to show us the implications of Christ's first advent as we sit and reflect on the promise of his second advent. He's trying to help us see it, to make this connection. John, maybe better than anybody else, reminds us, and the church knew this, Luke knew this, John helps us see that as Believers, as followers of Jesus, we live between two advents. We find ourselves living in this in-between kind of moment. It's a very conflicting moment we find ourselves in. We're living between two advents. But the beauty of that is we are not forever looking into the past for our hope. We're not. We're not looking backwards forever. Our past is a sign of the hope that lies ahead of us. That's what's at the heart of Advent. Bethlehem is just pointing us towards something that's still coming, right? The sense we get from John and from Luke as he's telling us this story is that what Jesus began in Bethlehem, he's going to finish in New Jerusalem. There's something incredible still to come, and that is just the evidence of the thing that is ahead of us. John's helping us remember, God is still coming. Don't lose sight of it. Don't lose heart. Because if we're, if we're being honest, there's nothing that feels more naive and childish to believe such a thing. Like it's one of those parts of our theology that if I'm being real with you, it feels strange to say that in front of people. Like, bro, do you really believe that? We've made a caricature of Jesus and the idea that he might return. It, it, just, it just makes us feel strange sometimes to say that out loud because it's been so long. We feel naive, and yet there is this ever-present reminder of the surprising and unexpected way in which he first came. It's just there before us the whole time. God chose to step into this world, right? He chose to come to be born as a child in the same way that you and I were. 
He entered into the frailty of human existence, right? The God of the universe chose to be born in order to redeem us, right? Israel had been looking for a Messiah, and they had been trying to to make sense of what it would look like for a long time. They had been praying and worshiping through it for years, but they were not, in all of their looking and longing for a Messiah, they were not expecting this. They were not expecting a Messiah like that. Not a baby born in Bethlehem. Not some carpenter living in an obscure existence in Nazareth. No. That is not what Messiah looks like. He surprised them. And many people were deeply uncomfortable with it. The idea that that man, Jesus of Nazareth, might be the Messiah, the Son of God. And I think as we walk through this season together... As we think about these things, as we look and long for the fulfillment of Jesus' promise, as we as a church say we long to see the kingdom come in, in Birmingham as it is in heaven, right? As we look and long for these things, we have to know that his second advent will as well be surprising and unexpected. It will not look the way we expect it to look. That's what Jesus keeps saying over and over again. He's saying it to his disciples He's saying it to the crowds. He says, when he comes, it'll be like a a thief coming in the night. Like a a robber who shows up when everybody's gone to sleep. That's comforting, Jesus. It'll be like a, a bridegroom who shows up. The bridal party was supposed to be awake, waiting on him to come for his bride. But they all fell asleep. Jesus says, that's what it will be like. Unexpected, surprising. It's gonna catch you off guard a bit. This is what it's like. He keeps using these kinds of images. And if we're being honest, that's perfect. Because there are so many moments in our lives where it feels like that. Like it is the dead of the night, the darkest part of the night, and still he has not shown up. And it just feels a whole lot more reasonable to just go ahead and go to sleep. Just move on. And yet John, Luke are telling us something different. We find ourselves feeling that weight sometimes. Maybe you feel it. Maybe you feel silly. Maybe you feel naive to believe such a thing. Maybe this hope that we're talking about in the season of Advent that John is pointing us toward, maybe it it feels so completely disconnected from your experience, from your current circumstance, from the thing you're living through, the questions you're asking, whatever it might be. And yet there's this reminder as you read the story. You're introduced to all these other people who must have felt the same thing. Think about like the Magi in Matthew. They're not worshipers of Yahweh. They're Gentile people from a foreign country. And the story being told is that they come following a star. They're astrologers. And they come looking for for something they don't know or understand. Surely they must have felt strange, a little, little confused about what they were doing. It's a long journey to make to go to a place like Israel. Surely... Surely the the shepherds must have felt just a little confused and caught off guard, right? An angel appears to them. It's amazing, but like, what are we going to see? What is about to unfold in Bethlehem? And when they stumbled into a stable in Bethlehem and said, this is the spot 
Like surely they were just confused and, and stunned by what they were seeing unfold. But more than anybody, Mary, surely she just, she had to have felt silly. Right? I always think of Sarah. You remember the story of Abraham and Sarah? They've been barren the whole of Sarah's life. They've never been able to have children. And God says she's going to have a child. And remember what Sarah does? She laughs. How absurd. Mary doesn't laugh. Mary speaks those words. She says, let this rhema, this word that you've spoken to me, be fulfilled. And it's good in this season for us to say those words with her. She's reflecting on the first advent. We are reflecting on the second. And we speak those same words. Father, let this word to me be fulfilled. We reflect on the words of Paul in Philippians. He says, he who began this good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Father, let this work that you've begun be completed, right? This is the cry of this season. Even so, come Lord Jesus, right? And as we come to the table this morning, as the band comes, I invite you, make that your prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, let this word be fulfilled. Establish your kingdom in whatever surprising and unexpected way you see fit. Make that your prayer. Allow the Lord to, to remind you what John is saying. He is still coming. He is patient. He is steadfast. He is coming. Let your heart cling to that hope. Give yourself to it completely in these days. Let's pray. Father, I ask in these moments that you would you'd stir a deep and abiding hope in our hearts, not just for what happened in the past that reminds us of how good you are, but for what's ahead of us. God, we pray that that hope would just kind of invade the present moment, that you'd stir something within us. God, for whatever it is we're going through, no matter how deep and existential or just as, as simple and surface level as it may be, God, we ask that you'd grant to us the same peace that Simeon felt in that moment. Now come and, and move among us as we worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So they're going to play, uh, and you're welcome to come uh, down the aisles. Uh, we've got uh, cups uh, that are prepackaged if you're more comfortable with that, and also we have bread that you can just tear a piece off and grab a cup and move back toward your seats. When you're done with that, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll come back up and, and lead us through as the band leads us.